Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good afternoon to all. I'm Bill Mobley from the Department of Neurosciences at UCSD, and I want to welcome you to Neuroscience in the Emerging Mind, a conversation on human consciousness and compassion. We're delighted that you're here. Much has been written and said of this extraordinary man, Tenzin Gyatso, the 14th Dalai Lama. That many dimensions of human experience have engaged him is well known, but it is in juxtaposing his experiences and titles that one begins to understand him. He's called the reincarnation of the compassionate Buddha, but he thinks of himself as a simple monk. He's the leader of the Tibetan government in exile, but I know personally he has forgiven those who caused his exile. He is an uncommon intellect, but equally his is an uncommon spirit. He's a spiritual leader, but also a powerful advocate for scientific research. He's a man of peace, but also a man who relentlessly pursues justice. Though an Nobel Prize winner, he is a person whose intellectual pursuits are transparent to all of us. Yes, he's a teacher, but very surely a student, a person of this place and time, but equally a man for all places and all times. Your Holiness, we welcome you to San Diego. Uh, one, uh, uh, one attempt uh, to uh, engage you in a conversation about which uh, your heart dwells very frequently, neuroscience, brain, mind, empathy, and compassion, all topics that you've spoken to in the past. We celebrate your arrival in a community in which you're revered, and also one that featured in your early thinking about the brain. I refer specifically to your relationship with Robert Livingston, my predecessor at UCSD, who shared with you so many years ago his thoughts about brain science. We look forward eagerly to your contributions to today's presentations and discussion. I welcome also uh, the Dalai Lama's interpreter, Tupton Jimpa Longri, a dear friend and colleague. Born in Tibet, Jimpa's early life led him to become a monk in southern India, where he, spent, where he went on to earn the Geshe Laram degree in a posi position teaching Buddhist epistemology uh, uh, and psychology. From there, he traveled to England, where he earned a BA and a PhD from Cambridge since 1985. He's been the principal English translator for His Holiness and has translated and edited more than 10 books, including the most recent one entitled Beyond Religion, Ethics for a Whole World. His independent scholarship focuses on translating Tibetan Buddhist texts. He currently serves as president of the Institute of Tibetan Classics in Montreal and a special consultant for the Center for Compassion, Altruism, Research, and Education at Stanford University. Jempa, we are honored to have you here in San Diego. We welcome you so much. I'm privileged as well to introduce our speakers. In order, they will be Dr. Jennifer Thomas, professor of psychology and member of the Center for Behavioral Teratology at San Diego State University. Uh, wonderful opportunity this session provides us to bring scholars in neuroscience from all of the host institutions. And Jennifer represents San Diego State University. She recently co-edited a special volume of alcohol research and fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. Her research focuses on how early experience such as exposure to alcohol and other drugs of abuse, affect brain and behavioral development and an elucidating effective interventions. In a recent publication, she showed that by influencing cholinergic systems and the structure of the hippocampus, perinatal choline supplementation attenuated alcohol-related behavioral changes. 
Thank you for coming, Jennifer. We look forward to your comments. Our second speaker is V.S. Ramachandran. Rama, as we know him, is director of the Center for Brain and Cognition. He's distinguished professor at the University of California, San Diego. Rama is author of Phantoms of the Brain, The Emerging Mind, The Telltale Brain and Neuroscientist's Quest for What Makes Us Human, and a brief tour of human consciousness from imposter poodles to purple numbers. He was recently named by Time Magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. In a recent paper entitled, Why Do People Hear Colors and Taste Words? He explored the genetics of synesthesia, a perceptual experience about which I hope he'll speak today. And finally, Lawrence Hinman. Dr. Hinman is Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the University of San Diego and co-director of the Center for Ethics and Science and Technology. He's the author of two books, Ethics, A Pluralistic Approach, and Contemporary Moral Issues, Diversity and Consensus. His research focuses on ethical issues in emerging science and technology, including search engines, privacy and surveillance, stem cell research and therapy, neuroscience, and robotics. Again, welcome to all of you. Welcome to our speakers. And let us begin with Dr. Thomas. Well, thank you very much. First of all, I'd like to say it's a real honor to participate in this event. And thank you so much for coming to San Diego. I'm a developmental psychobiologist, so I'm very interested in how early experience can influence the development of the brain and our physiology, and how that relates then to development of behavior and psychology. And I know that when we think of the neuroscience of compassion or of consciousness, we are really a lot of times focusing on those neural systems that are involved in the expression and the production of compassion, and I'm sure we'll be talking about that today. But I think it's also very important for us to understand the consequences of compassionate acts and the effects that also has on our neurophysiology and our psychology. And we really do recognize that the brain is so plastic and malleable throughout our entire lifespan that all of our experiences, so even our social interactions, can have a, a big impact, but they have a particularly big impact when they happen early in development, when the neurological, the physiological, and the psychological, or the states of mind are, being, are developing. And so... I think that uh, it's very encouraging that there's the research, and you actually mentioned this in your talk earlier today, about um, we know that an individual that is is reared in a nurturing environment and experiences that compassion early on, that that has real physiological effects and effects on brain development. We know that. That something as simple as a mother touching her infant um, has direct effects on their heart rate, on their stress hormones, and that a lot of those effects are long-lasting and can actually change some of the set point of their stress reactions so that they become resilient to stress later on throughout their entire lifespan. Yeah, and so it's really going to change how the individual perceives and reacts to uh, events in their entire lifespan. And of course, we know that when that resiliency is, is established, that that's also going to change their physical and mental health. And I think that's very promising. Um, of course, on the flip side of that, unfortunately, having that plasticity means that if the individual experiences adverse events, um, in the worst case, abuse or, or trauma, but even neglect, that that also has effects on the development of these emotional systems. Um, And even basic science has shown that um, that neglect will change gene expression in the developing stress system so that the individuals will react to stressors differently. 
And that, of course, can translate into um, greater risk for mental health problems later on, greater risk for risky behaviors like alcohol and drug abuse. And so I think that one of the challenges, because we're facing so many of these issues in today's society, is what we can do to promote healthy development in that individual who may not have that compassionate early experience. And so I think that that is really one of, of the big challenges that certainly we face, I face in my scientific research. Um, another piece to this that I think is an, an area that we really are, are starting to investigate is how these systems in the brain that are involved in compa- empathy and perhaps compassion develop and what, how these factors then influence that. So how does early experience affect the development of mirror neuron systems and what does that mean in terms of a person's empathetic behavior later on? And if an individual does have either adverse events, and I want to point out too that not, not everybody who has adverse events has an outcome. That many people are very resilient. So yes, I think that one of our challenges really then is to try to identify how can we promote compassion and peace in an individual who hasn't experienced that, but also with other developmental disorders where there may be some change in the function of those brain areas, we may have to come up with novel strategies, and I know that you have been looking into some of that as well, um, in order to help those individuals also achieve, personally achieve compassion and peace. Yes, well, it is uh, indeed a great honor for me to be in your presence, to be here to share some of my ideas and thoughts with you and with the audience. I've long admired your writings, especially your, your compassion and your erudition, thoughtfulness and love. And uh, all of your writings, in fact, I've admired. I'm here today to talk about, in this brief five-minute presentation, and to share some of my ideas with you about the human brain and how consciousness emerges from activity of cells in the brain. If you think about it, your brain is just a lump of jelly, uh, 1.5 kilograms, and you can hold it in the palm of your hand, and you can contemplate the vastness of interstellar space, meaning of infinity, meaning of love, charity, pity. You can even contemplate itself contemplating, what we call self-awareness or uh, uh, introspection. So if you think about the brain, it consists of 100 billion neurons and nerve cells. So our question, there are two questions that emerge. One is a metaphysical question. Metaphysical question is, who am I? Where do I come from? Uh, why is there something rather than nothing? What is the meaning of existence? Versus there is the empirical question of there are 100 billion nerve cells in my brain, little wisps of jelly f- firing away. How does this activity of these cells give rise to the whole spectrum of abilities we call human nature, human consciousness? So I'd like to focus on the empirical questions because I'm not a philosopher or I'm not involved in metaphysics, although they're interesting, fascinating questions. And even though I'm from India. <laughs> And I'd like to focus on a system of neurons called mirror neurons in the front of the brain. These neurons are called motor command neurons. They're a subcategory of motor command neurons. Motor command neurons are involved in orchestrating a sequence of muscle twitches to reach out and grab a cup. So there's one neuron or a small group of neurons in the frontal lobes, in the premotor cortex, that fires away when I reach out and grab a cup, orchestrating the sequence of muscle twitches. Similarly, there's another neuron for pulling a lever, uh, sending messages down the fibers here in the brain, down the spinal cord, out to the muscles, so that when I push, push something, there's one group of neurons, when I pull something, there's another group of neurons, when I grab a cup, there's another neuron, when I put something in the mouth, there's another set of neurons. These are called motor command neurons. 
But it turns out that a small set of these neurons, identified in the last 10 years, will fire not only when I reach and grab a cup, but when I watch you reach out and grab a cup. This sounds astonishing, it sounds psychic, but it isn't. These neurons are called mirror neurons. So the neuron fires when I reach for a cup, and when I watch you reach for a cup, and I'm simply watching you. Another neuron fires when I pull a lever, same neuron fires when I watch you pull a lever. This is a subset of these motor command neurons. These are called mirror neurons. So what's a mirror neuron doing? When I saw this paper, I jumped off my seat. Because it's what, what the neuron is signaling to the higher areas in the brain is, the higher areas are saying, the same neuron is firing now as would fire when you reach and grab a cup. Therefore, that's what that person is intending to do. So it's a mind-reading neuron. It's a neuron that's creating a virtual reality simulation of another person's mind and, and empathizing with the other person, so to speak. This is the basis of compassion, after all. So it allows you to take, look at the world from the other person's point of view, and uh, temporarily, of course. Now, it's interesting that while you do this, you don't actually leave your body and float out in space and look at another person. Why is that? The reason is the mirror neuron activity is partially inhibited by other signals coming from the frontal lobes, which say, look, empathize, put yourself in that person's shoes, view the world from that person's point of view, but don't literally leave your body. Now, if something goes wrong with that, then you literally start having out-of-body experiences, or through, through practices like meditation, maybe you temporarily suspend that inhibition, so you're able to genuinely adopt another person's point of view, therefore achieve genuine compassion or empathy. Now that's about mirror neurons in the frontal lobes. There are also mirror neurons in the parietal lobe, posteriorly, in the back of the brain, which are sensory neurons. There's a complete map of the body. If I touch here, one neuron fires. If I touch here, another neuron fires. If I touch here, another neuron fires. Complete map of the body surface in the brain. Some of these sensory neurons, most of them are just sensory neurons. But some of the sensory neurons will fire. If somebody touches your holiness and I'm watching, the neuron fires. So again, it's an empathy neuron because what's reading that signal higher up is saying the same neuron is firing when he's being touched as when I'm being touched. So empathize with that person. So I feel this empathy towards you. Same thing for pain. If somebody pokes me with, with a needle, my anterior cingulate neurons fire, and I say, ouch, and I withdraw my hand. But if somebody pokes you with a needle, some of these same neurons fire, saying, my God, the same thing is happening to him as would happen if somebody were to poke me with a needle. Let me be compassionate. Let me be empathetic. But... I don't literally feel the pain. When somebody pokes you with a needle, I, I empathize and I partially experience the pain, but I don't literally feel it. That's again because the skin in my hand has the receptors signaling back to the brain, look, you're not being poked, don't worry. Empathize by all means, but don't worry, you're not being poked. So I don't, when I watch you being poked, I don't say, ouch, and withdraw my hand. Now, it's possible. And finally, the reason I don't feel your pain when I'm watching it, even though my pain neurons are firing, is because my skin is informing the brain, you're not being poked, so don't worry. But if somebody were to amputate my arm, right, then I have a phantom arm, then I watch you being poked, that inhibitory signal from the hand is removed, so now I literally feel the pain, and I say, ouch, and withdraw my phantom. We've actually shown this in a number of experiments. So now, I literally start experiencing your pain. So the compassion becomes almost literal, it's no longer metaphorical, simply by removing the skin. The astonishing implication of this is the only barrier between your consciousness and my consciousness, shunyata, the only barrier between your consciousness and my consciousness is my bloody skin. Remove the skin, <laughs> our minds start blending with each other and I start experiencing your mental phenomena. So this gives you a genuine scientific basis for phenomena like empathy and, and compassion and things of that nature. And last point, these activity of these sensory mirror neurons, these pain neurons, pain mirror neurons, which allow me to empathize with your pain, 
but not literally feel the pain and say, ouch. Important for survival, obviously, because I would start feeling your pain. But these are also modulated by frontal, nerve, frontal lobe neurons feeding back, and modulating the activity of mirror neurons, so I don't actually feel your pain. So I don't over-empathize. But it's possible through meditation and through other practices to diminish this inhibition. But then I start, my empathy becomes even greater, and I develop actual genuine compassion, genuine empathy, something that would be useful during these troubled times in our world. And I'm wondering what Buddhism has to say about that. Um, I'll, that's all I have to say. Thank you. Good afternoon. And uh, let me just express my, my, just my deep respect and appreciation for your work over these many years. I, I feel that I've learned so much in terms of your understanding of the way in which science and religion can be friends and colleagues together, and the way in which each can complement and complete the other, and as well the notion of robust spirituality that you've brought to us, an embodied spirituality uh, that, that I find, I must say, uh, particularly enlightening and attractive. I'm a philosopher by trade, so in contrast to my colleagues here, uh, I have no answers, only questions. Uh, <laughs> but uh, hopefully I'll be able to facilitate our discussion by marking out some of the conceptual territory in regard to compassion and the ways in which I think the neurosciences and other sciences can move us forward in our understanding and striving toward a more compassionate life. But let me begin with a scientist who um, not only is no longer with us, but uh, going all the way back to Aristotle, uh, one of the uh, first of the bi great biologists. And, and Aristotle, in one of his works, said something that, with which I suspect you may disagree, I'm not sure. But he said that anger sometimes can be a virtue when it's at the right person, at the right time, for the right reason, and expressed in the right way. That framework is one that I'd like to apply to compassion and suggest that part of the uh, quest that we find ourselves communally engaged in is the search to know how to be, not simply whether to be compassionate, but how to be compassionate toward the right persons, in the right way, at the right time, and in the right manner. And here, I think, we find the contributions of the neurosciences are particularly powerful as we begin to understand, really for the first time in human history, the neurophysiological substrate of this experience of comp compassion. And that understanding I think, can help us to both see how we are grounded as, as living creatures in compassion, but also we may start to understand some of the limits of our experience of compassion, limits that may call for special effort for us to compensate. Um, we can imagine, going back to the comparison with anger, um, that there are people who can be too angry, at the wrong or at the wrong time or you know and we even know I'm sure some people whose anger seems to be pervasive and they find more occasions uh, in the world to experience this than, than most of us but we also find those for whom almost nothing seems to raise this and we start to wonder is there a kind of aphasia here that's and so too with compassion what I'd like to suggest is that uh, 
it's certainly possible to have too little. We know that. You know? One of the questions I'd like to pose, is it possible sometimes to have too much? Is it possible when the barriers between my own suffering and the suffering of others start to dissipate of being overwhelmed by the suffering in the world? And how do we achieve this Aristotelian balance between too much and too little? And so that's one of the questions with the, that I would like to pose during the, the course of our discussion. I'd also like to suggest that, that compassion is perhaps, un, sometimes we understand it as an emotion or a feeling. I'd like to suggest a different metaphor, and that is as a kind of attunement, to think of it almost in musical terms, that, that to live in the compassionate life is to be attuned with a particular dimension of our, our world and to act in accord with that. One of the things that I would like to bring up is that when we are uh, discussing um, the topic of mental world, mental processes, uh, we need to keep in mind we are dealing with um, a topic that is very, very complex. So even with regard to a single mental factor like compassion, it's not adequate simply to look at it in its own, on its own, because we have to look at it uh, in terms of its many facets, the conditions that it give, uh, give rise to it, what are its various expressions, what are the attendant mental factors that accompany it. So it is a very complex issue. Hmm. As you mentioned, right time, Very mischievous people, uh, because no matter what sort of wrongdoing, still my relative or my sort of close friend so develop some some kind of compassion, different kind of compassion. Uh, uh, even enemy, uh, as far as their attitude towards me is concerned, very negative. But because you see, they also uh, a sentient being or human being who do not want suffering, yet passing through sort of difficulties or s s suffering, then develop some kind of sense of concern. That is a genuine compassion without attachment. Uh, do, do, not do not concern about their attitude towards you. Uh, and then, uh, then also anger out of sense of concern 
immediate motiv- as an immediate motivation, some anger comes. That's the right anger. Uh, or with certain kind of negative feeling and develop anger is negative. So this uh, uh, in, in mat- material field, one chemical thing due to other sort of substance, it may change its effect. So similarly, mm-hmm. mind world also, you see, there are thousands, thousands of different mind. It's simultaneous or before or immediate or after. Oh. And also depending upon your familiarity to different kinds of habits. Oh. Then now I think the, uh, with my Indian friend, I think our tradition, we also believe rebirth. Uh, so uh, here also, you see some sort of what's the factor about past life's acquaintance, right? familiarities. Uh, so that is uh, uh, not involved in science. Uh, our discussion. discussion yeah. Whenever I discuss with a scientist, when you see some people you see raise question of the next life, or previous life, then I usually say, oh, there's something different, top, different topic. Uh, <laughs> beyond our topic. <laughs> but, however, it's the way people who, who accept the life after life, then that also is the cause of that. Becomes a factor. Uh, sometimes, mm-hmm. scientifically, Difficult to find explanation. Now, for example, twin. Same opportunity, so the same sort of circumstances, uh, but the sharpness of their mind. Of course, in some extent, on the genes or biological factor, you can explain something, but complete explanation, I think, difficult. And anyway, that's not much no, like that. So with um, your comment about um, mirror neurons and how you know, certain signals in the brain seems to be present even when you observe someone yes. doing the gesture, you also spoke about how a brain has this capacity for self-awareness. Yes. Um, so... He was saying that it reminded him of um, an observation made by uh, a 7th century Indian philosopher um, who talked about how you know, every cognitive event has a self-awareness component to it. Yes. Um, so, and so, so in the case of people who are observing someone behaving when you are not yourself acting, and then the mirror neurons are being fired. So his holiness is wondering we know from our own personal experience when you observe because firstly, someone uh, within Buddhist school of thought uh, uh, different explanation the, about the variety of mind uh, so I think finally uh, through some kind of single, single point of meditation then then uh, certain things to see actually because the experienced now for example the when we say uh, when we ask 
what's mind? Difficult to answer. So now for that, in order to find that answer, first you try to stop memory and also stop not so thinking about future. Just present moment. And there also, you see, because not necessarily the organs is close, but you see, remain like this, but mental, the mental level, not to follow the After sensory concern. After the object, no. After external objects. Oh. After the sensory experiences. Oh. Uh, so remain there. Then, short moment, you get some kind of feeling of empty. Uh, because usually our thought is covered by experience through sensorial or memory or some kind of hopes and visions about the future. future. Once you see all these stop, then you get some kind of feeling empty. You remain longer period there, then you get feeling of the mere cognitive experience. Love. Experience. So, so in any way, that's not easy. Therefore, within Buddhist school of thought, you see different today, different views about this about mind on different minds. So, now one of them. So His Holiness was uh, saying that uh, from our own personal experience, we do know that sometimes we may observe something, but if we're not paying attention, so the mind wanders off. But sometimes we observe something and we can register it. So, uh, so when you observe something with attention, you are able to recall that experience. So His Holiness is wondering whether from your research, have you been able to look at the difference between someone who sees someone be acting without paying much attention versus someone who sees someone acting but also paying attention to it. Would you, would you see any difference at the brain level? Oh, sensorial level, seeing. But mental level, thinking something else. So not much feeling. So you're the asking... picture, very clear. Oh. As I understand it, you're asking if I'm looking at somebody performing the action but not paying any attention to it, does the mirror neuron still fire? Fire. And, and will there be a difference in the intensity? Yeah. yeah. There's some evidence that it is modulated by attention. So only if you're paying attention to the other person moving, there's the same neuron fire. If you're not paying attention, neurons don't fire. Oh. Oh. So it's not just... So his holiness is wondering, so what makes it to fire? I mean, is it the attention or...? It's the attention, but exactly how attention modulates the firing of the mirror neurons, we don't know. So Solonis is wondering, um, given that, um, you know, at the sensory level, when you observe something, even if you're not paying attention, the visual experience registers what you see. Uh, so in some sense, there is an element of attention, because otherwise you wouldn't simply, you know, for react to it. React to it. Yeah. So, uh, so how does... But still not fire. So the mirror neurons are not firing unless you pay conscious attention to Correct, it. Correct, yes. So, so that's the firing is So, so, the, so the, the difference really is here is the conscious attention. Right. Uh, so it's very difficult to still fully understand how the mirror neuron firing really works in relation to observing someone's action. 
how it works in relation to consciousness, we still don't know. That's true of any phenomenon in neuroscience. Um, I mean, just not just mirror neurons, but if I look at that red, is it red? Yeah, that red flower there, or yellow flower. You know what the entire pathway is? You go up to V4 in the brain, fusiform gyrus, and I say red, and I experience all the memories and all of that. But we just know which neurons are firing correlated with that experience, and we can predict the behavior and predict the production of the word red and associations. But the actual subjective quality of redness, the qualia, as we say in, in, in neuroscience, that we cannot explain yet. Something that Francis Crick was very interested in when he was here. Can I ask a question about reincarnation? And I think that it's ideas <laughs> going, going to a completely different... <laughs> um, that is... They, this is business only, you see, the ancient Indian sort of tradition yes. who accept rebirth. Right. So it is our exclusive business. <laughs> but I'm Indian too. <laughs> Let me just uh, first ask a follow-up question about mirror neurons because it strikes me that part of what we're uncovering is that this is a mechanism that's not confined at all to the human species, but no. we find it in other species yes. as well. And this yes. is one of the ways in which we're discovering uh, our, our commonality, the way in which we share with the, the rest of the living world. And I'm curious about when scientists have done studies about our perception of the suffering of non-human beings does this mechanism of neuron, mirror neurons work in the same way across species? Well, if you record from mirror neuron cells, even a robot that reaches out and grabs something will fire the neuron. Well, it depends they, on the okay. visual similarity. Nobody has looked at whether you need to identify with that creature, mm -hmm. with that robot or with that dog, saying, well, that has the same similar mind to me, whether that also is required mm -hmm. for modulating the activity of mirror neurons and accepting it. Okay. We don't know that. Such detailed studies have not, have not been carried out, and it's a fascinating, raises fascinating questions. But I want to say be... that it's not enough just to have these neurons. It's connections with higher brain centers is absolutely critical, and that's what may be more sophisticated in humans. Mm -hmm. We've argued that they may be partly deficient in children with autistic uh, yeah. spectrum of disease. That's Given that um, the human experience of empathy, um, which allows us to identify with someone else's pain that is other than our own, uh, involves uh, quite a lot of activity in the higher cognitive processes like memory, recognition, and so on, discriminations, and so on. He's wondering, um, you know, among animals, you know, we do see, you know, the, the mothers being able to respond to the need of their offsprings. So to what extent we can talk about empathy in the animal kingdom, and, and will it be a different So, for example, His Holiness was saying that maybe one could um, make the kind of hypothesis that animals may not be capable of extending this kind of empathy across their species, beyond their own species. Right, that's a good question. Um, but I think it is fascinating that there's so much more evidence now that, that non-human species do engage in pro-social behavior and do engage in what we might consider to be somewhat empathetic behavior. And does right, but very limited. Only their own species. Only their own species, right. You would get empathy in social creatures. I think the natural tendency, 
perhaps I think. For example, you see the one lone person, you see, so the single person. reach or single person reach one area. No other human being, except just one human being, maybe different color. Uh, but still, you may get the feeling, oh, here one human being. So some tendency relying on that person. You win. So, the oneness which is desperate times, the oneness will lead to one. So His Holiness is wondering that, for example, in the case of human beings, so someone may be a single person walking into a completely deserted area and then comes across another person, but from a completely different racial background. But this person who is... Not only stranger, but unknown. Completely unknown. Oh. Yeah. But nature sort of tendency, maybe one human being. To immediately identify with that total stranger. A sense of affinity will be felt. Uh, so it's always is asking question, will that be a kind of a natural expectation? Then, that's mainly a biological factor. Then, same human being, they educate or you are something different. Something different. The other something different. Then because of I may say some kind of brainwash. Ideology now. Ideology. Then, uh, look uh, meet you some other then instead of sort of empathy, but some kind of sort of distance. Uh, distance. Could say contemporary society, I mean I don't want to sound cynical, maybe discourages the activity of mirror neurons by emphasizing individuality. And, and, and part of educational goal of education should be to revive, not just in autistic children, but in all of us. Not you, of course, but the rest of us. So these are really, uh, I feel, my impression is, in the scientific field, just the beginning, uh, more sort of, uh, of the research about consciousness, about mind. So I think within the next 10 years, I think um, find some new things, new ideas, new evidence. In five years? Uh, then, then <laughs> still further, I think later part of this century, I think uh, we may find scientifically, we may find some new sort of the understanding. Uh, new understanding. That, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned before, in India, the, I think several centuries, you see, the, among scholars, philosophers, philosophers, you see, they discuss about these things. Uh, uh, <laughs> so there's a Tibetan um, author, um, 19th century, I think 19th century, 19th century, who, you know, good practitioner, in the light good of scholar, being confronted with all the diversity of the philosophical views found in the Indian and Tibetan tradition, he said that. Um, and so many issues have been attempted to be decided, but there is no real decision yet. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like science. Exactly, yeah. exactly. I was going to say philosophy. But... <laughs> uh, 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 still, you see, 
I think wonderful. The process already started. That's, I think, wonderful. So far, modern science, just the physical field. Now it, it really reached another sort of level. level. So then it really become complete. Otherwise, you see, we're just talking about physical, physical, physical. Level. Matter. No. Uh, the mind, just the subject side, and just... Ignore. Ignore. No. Oh. In the meantime, scientists themselves also, you see, a lot of experience, pains and pleasure and excitement and desperation. These, these are all mental thinking, mental, mental matter, isn't it? <laughs> so they have to, so far, you see, the scientists or people, you see, just investigate uh, from outside. Uh, outside. Sort of not adequate sort of investigation. They are themselves. Inside, no. So far, right. Uh, I think a simple answer, oh, there's a soul. Okay, soul, soul, soul there. Uh, Hindus say, Atma, Atma here. <laughs> we, ju- we just satisfy on that level. Atma and soul. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, let, let me just, uh, in the spirit of this being just the beginning mm-hmm. of what science is uncovering for us, pose another question about memory. And in particular, it seems as though what we're gradually moving towards is not simply understanding the mechanisms of memory, but also beginning to develop some abilities to manipulate memory. And in particular, to be able to dampen often the negative affective dimensions of memory, uh, including for those suffering from PTSD and uh, various other types of things. Uh, The question I'd like to pose is how do we use this ability wisely in the future and what does Buddhism perhaps have to say to us in guiding this because in many ways our most painful memories are probably things we would not wish on anyone else but they become part of who we are and so we wouldn't necessarily want to get rid of them in ourselves. And so it seems to present some difficult and uh, perplexing issues. And I've just... I think mainly common sense. Nobody wants suffering. Nobody wants problem. I think within this room, I think nobody from early morning hoping, or today, I want uh, facing more problem. <laughs> I think nobody, nobody feel that. At least, even you see people who really, their life in the center of problem. But at least, you see, uh, in the early morning, or oh, wish, or oh, today, less problem. So, if we use common sense, many of these problems, our own creation, isn't it? So, so that, that's the main reason. So awareness, education, so educating. That's my view. Not talking about next life or nirvana or moksha or atma. <laughs> now here, we, the Hindus uh, and Buddhists, of course, Buddhists also, you see, India's religion. Uh, I always used to refer Indians, our guru. We are chela. One Indian. You also Indian. One Indian here. Yeah? <laughs> I think. Uh, uh, 
Yes, yes, that's right. Uh, I always see telling uh, Indians traditionally, historically, our guru. Uh, and we are Chela. Chela means student. Uh, so I uh, often sort of express that we are not only student, but also quite a reliable student. <laughs> that means that those things which we learned from India, uh, we kept intact. While India's own land, teachers' own land, a lot of ups and downs. So that's quite sufficient to prove we are reliable student. <laughs> I agree. So uh, now more sort of detail. <laughs> uh, Hindus, different, different, different kind of Hinduism, uh, including Jainism. Of course, Jainism, Buddhism, almost like a twin. Uh, we do not accept creator. Uh, uh, and we believe law of causality. Uh, so life after life. That many Hindus you see, accept that. Uh, but then, then you see real demarcation between Buddhism and uh, not non-ancient, because of non so they, Non-Buddhist uh, Indian tradition. Non-Buddhist Indian tradition. Uh, Indian tradition. The real demarcation is Atma, or soul, or soulless. We believe soulless. <laughs> no self. That means if we really deny self, it's foolish. Of course, if I hit, I feel pain. So I is there, self is there. So, uh, furthermore, because of that, self, other self. So, deliberately trying to promote altruism, taking care of the other self sort of well-being. Uh, then selfless means uh, usually you see, we get this sort of impression of uh, this body, mind, like possess, possession. 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 So we correctly use my body, my mind. Uh, so there is some kind of tendency. There's a kind of a, um, uh, assumption. Uh, assumption. There is real owner of this body and mind. So the ownership from from possess, uh, not so, illogical. Therefore. There must be independent, uh, kind of uh, self. Uh, yes, independent, absolute sort of self. So that, from Buddhist viewpoint, that's the basis of uh, self-centered attitude and basis of arrogance, basis of fear, basis of anger, not basis of compassion. Now here we have to make subtle distinction. All destructive emotions, more spontaneous emotions, based on ultimately wrong view. Like compassion, through training, not spontaneous, through reasons 
these emotions, at some level, has become emotion. Very much unbearable. Feeling. Strong feeling. That through training, not spontaneous. So that kind of emotion based on logic. So not based on ignorance or wrong view. So that differences. The wrong, any emotion which based on wrong view, ultimately weak. Emotion which based on reason. Uh, valid now reason uh, valid reasons or perman valid cognition that see it time goes time time goes then that one uh, getting stronger 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 because think more investigate 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 more uh, uh, research more more solid sort of basis so uh, increasing conviction. Anger comes as uh, very bad, the object. But if you analyze more and more and more, then no independent absolute sort of target. Yeah. So that makes, but these are, I think, maybe sort of within the exclusive zone. <laughs> so so not, not relevant here. I think just to clarify, Professor Hinman, I think you were trying to ask a question about the potential dangers of abuse of applications you know, as our understanding of mental processes advance. Yes. And is that what you were trying to get at? Yes, and, and I don't think. I don't think. Actually, like you said, people, those totalitarian regimes, mm-hmm. they accept the mental thinking is very important. Therefore, they sort of carry brainwash activities, televisions, or news, or everything. The real sort of picture, the height, uh, according to their necessity, they create wrong, wrong picture. So they're supposed to see, they know the importance of mind. So they utilize. Now, such things are, of course, if you if you use common sense properly, then these are useless. <laughs> we human brain brain quite sort of smart. clear, smart. In the long run, they know what's truth, or what sort of propaganda. So of course, here you see, uh, I, I may say, uh, I mean, usually I expressing. Particularly when I meet some Chinese from mainland China and also some overseas Chinese, sometimes I sit telling them these hardliner Chinese and also some other sort of like Syrian leaders. leaders. You see, they, they in human, now now you are a specialist about brain. So (laughs) I usually see telling uh, in our brain, uh, some area, you see, usually you see, create our common sense. That part of the brain, these sort of authoritarian leaders, that part of the brain is missing. <laughs> <laughs> they have no sort of common sense. They simply, they are images of power. How to keep my power? And that lies and censorship. How can success? You know, sociopathic personality. Huh? 
Mm-hmm. The almost sociopathic personality. So these are, uh, so therefore, you see, I think we, human mind, quite smart. More knowledge about mind, uh, how, to, how to tackle our mind. I think less danger to manipulate, I feel. Yeah. <laughs> Become more realistic. So tell lies. Won't help. Remain honest. Tell truth. More effective. And when I learned about mirror neurons, I became more compassionate. You know, there's an Mirror neuron called Hagu Tugolitin and Ningzi That's right. That's right. I think from, from birth, not only we human beings, but even animals, I think appreciate truthful. Honest. My small cat. Uh, uh, particularly, you see, the, uh, uh, one dog, 1959, before 1959, when I was Lhasa, one small dog. Of course, usually I also see feeding, but not, not very sort of that. Affectionately. Affectionately. So, uh, although that dog, suppose Dalai Lama's dog, but that dog never show affection towards me. <laughs> they don't care about the position. <laughs> so they really care. You see, the person who really showing daily affection. So these people, I mean, these animals, poor animal, knows. And then another another story. I often used to telling. When I was in, in quite young, on small kasa, parrot, uh, parrots, uh, one of my sort of the, the friend, uh, whenever he passing through that area, uh, he gives sort of nuts to that parrot. So that parrot, uh, when that person coming from some distance, is sort of there. Boots. Voice. Yeah. The sound of his sound. Walk. Boots. Oh. They knows. That better knows. Already is excited. <laughs> oh. Then they give sort of nuts. And then you see that person finger you see in the, in the cage and go like that. Stroke. Something very nice. So I want that kind of attitude. Mm. Oh. So I give some sort of nut. Never show that. Mm. Oh. Then, uh, finally, I use stick <laughs> as, a, as punishment. <laughs> so then, our relation broken. <laughs> so even animal, you see, they appreciate, truthful, yes. honest, isn't it? Yes. Oh. Clever, different sort of aim whether you see to, Karuta, to catch, or this is the, the owners of the Kamutamba, but she was a Christian, she was a Christian, she was a Christian, she was a Christian, she was a Christian. So, in the case of this parrot, it was quite smart to know that, you know, I was trying to bribe it <laughs> simply by giving that, but not going all the way by showing the faction. So, I think in human society, I think 
uh, uneducated people may be easier to, to bully, to manipulate. Education improve. I think the cunning, the cunning method will not succeed. Only truthful, honest. This is my view. So hopeful, isn't it? Hopeful, yes. I think. It's yeah. great, yes. Huh? Everything depends on education. That's very, very important, I feel. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.